But welcome to City Life, whether you're joining us here in person or whether you're joining us online, whether you're watching this a year from now on YouTube, we're just glad that you're here to receive from God. And if you, are, uh, if you got your Bibles, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 7. And if you are a note taker, you can simply put down the fear factory. Think fear factor, Joe Rogan, but just throw a Y on the end. <laughs> but I know we're live from Newport News and it's Saturday night, but we don't need like an SNL monologue to get going. Can we jump right into the word? Y'all cool with that? <laughs> good, good. Y'all ready? I heard people over here. This was quiet. Y'all, y'all, quiet. thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Jordan. But I hope you have your Bible. You know, I've been preaching for over a decade now, and I try to intentionally, every time I preach, pick this thing up and read from it. Because not as like a performance, but as a reminder that we're to be people of this book, engaging with this book, opening this book for ourselves as we pursue God. And, and I've set out to read it cover to cover every year since I started following Christ in 2005, not as some performative thing, but a, a deeply personal thing. And as I do it, I try to remember the words of uh, Tom Rinke, who says, the Bible is not a book to get through, to read cover to cover, and then put on a shelf. Neither is it a book to browse or skim. It is less of a book and more of a world of revelation in which we live and move and have our being. But as we move through the Bible, right, as you read through the Bible cover to cover, you'll, you'll engage with many genres of writing, many different styles from history to instructive text. So, like, what are some of your favorite parts to read of Scripture? Like, what's your favorite book to read in the Bible? You can just shout it out. Proverbs, Matthew, Romans, Numbers, Jamal. <laughs> But that's true. Usually those are our answers, right? Like Romans, Paul's instructions to the church and to followers of Christ. We had a gospel, right? The, 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 the ministry of Jesus or maybe Proverbs or Psalms, the wisdom literature of Scripture. I don't think for many of us we'd pick like the prophets in the back of the Old Testament. Most of us wouldn't pick like the narrative and prophetic portions of Scripture. And the passage we're in tonight is in Isaiah, which is mostly prophetic. Mostly prophecies, but like slices of history within it as his prophecies are fulfilled or as he delivers his prophecies. And not only does Isaiah include beautiful pictures, prophetic pictures of the Messiah to come and Jesus, but there's a verse in there just tucked away in a, in a narrative portion of Isaiah that struck me a few years ago and, and, and underlined it, highlighted and just sat on it for a while. And I probably read past it dozens of years because it's in the narrative. You just skim past it, keep reading. These five words that I've highlighted and have meant something to me ever since, it's, it's simply in Isaiah 7, 4, where he says, tell him to stop worrying. Simple and plain, short and sweet. Tell him to stop worrying. Now, that's not up in like our pantheon of commonly memorized verses with Romans 8, 28, John 3, 16, Jeremiah 29, 11, Psalm 23, whatever. It's not going to be one that we see framed in like the word art in people's houses or, or posted in, in, on Instagram or something, but it's a powerful little verse, those five words, especially when we get to the context, which we will. And it's a reminder that all of Scripture is God-breathed from front to back, and all of it can speak to us in different seasons of life. And I love that Jesus affirms this as when he was living and breathing in the midst of his ministry, he echoes this as if responding to Isaiah's call to, hey, tell that, tell that person to stop worrying, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. It's Matthew 6, 25. I love that right here in the most famous sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the time 
Not just to echo Isaiah, but to teach on worry. That God cares about your life, the big parts and the small parts. And whatever concerns you carried in here tonight that are weighing on you, he cares. He cares. So here tonight, these words spoken by Isaiah and Jesus, don't worry. That's easier said than done, though. Like if Jesus just said that and said, all right, let's wrap it up. Let's all go home. We're not going to do that tonight either. Because it's not as simple as like flipping a switch, turning the lights off or turning on the AC or something where you're just, it's done. But see, worry is a remix of one of the most common commands in Scripture, don't fear. Fear not, don't be afraid. And maybe this is why Isaiah follows it up with, tell him he doesn't need to fear. The Bible has a whole lot to say about fear. Fear is a whole sermon in and of itself, and we'll hit on it a lot tonight. But fear in our lives, it's often involuntary. It's the response to a specific perceived threat, whether it's valid or not, and we feel fear. And when it's valid, fear can be life-saving. You can, it can save your life, a proper fear. Right? That's what we try to teach our kids. Like, Raj, don't run in the street. You should have a proper fear of that. Or, or he used to just, <laughs> you go to Virginia Beach, there's these waves and riptides, and he just gets pulled out. He's smiling. He's like, no, there's a proper fear of, of riptides in the ocean that we should have. Proverbs 19.23 goes as far as to say that the fear of Lord, the Lord isn't just life-saving, it's life-giving. It gives life. But then there's worry. Worry is where, where properly placed fear can be life-giving. Gavin De Becker, he says in his book, The Gift of Fear, to worry oneself is a form of self-harassment. Worry is the fear we manufacture. Worry is manufactured fear. While fear is primarily an involuntary response in the brain's amygdala, worry is something we internally produce. And our brains can turn into these fear factories, manufacturing and even mass producing different reasons and, and, and things to worry about. Reasons to be anxious, some of which will never happen. Like examples from a day in the life. <laughs> I've never stolen from Walmart. <laughs> but every time I'm walking out of Walmart with a bag of products, for some reason I have like this deep dread that the alarm's gonna go off. I don't know what that's rooted in. I don't know what traumatic experience I had as a kid. But that is a silly fear. But there are serious worries. Like the, Raj's most recent medical tests or Steph's most recent procedures and updates on that. Those are, those are serious worries and concerns. And we see here in Isaiah 7, there is a legitimate, <laughs> serious reason to fire up that fear factory and generate some worry. I go read it in a second, but it's almost like that song, Defender, Madeline knew what I was preaching on tonight. Because we see King Ahaz, he's the king of Judah. He's, he's being approached by the king of Israel and the king of Syria who are ready to go to battle and put somebody else on the throne of Judah. And he's considering making this foolish alliance with Assyria, and he's, he's sweating it, he's worried, and he's out near the, the, the aqueduct, which you can take note of for later, no doubt trying to secure his water for if there was a siege, and this is when Isaiah comes to him and says, hey, hey, tell him not to worry. Legitimate concerns, which we're, let's read about right now. But Isaiah says, hey, tell him not to worry. Let's read verses 1 through 9 of Isaiah 7 now. It says, when Ahaz, son of Jotham and grandson of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king resident of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. The news had come to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the hearts of the king and his people trembled with fear, like trees shaking in a storm. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, take your son, Shir Jashub, and go to meet King Ahaz. 
You will find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burned out embers, King Rezin of Syria and Pekah son of Ramali. I love that God like knows how to talk trash. Like these two burnt out embers, it's like little jabs. Yes, the kings of Syria and Israel are plotting against him, saying we will attack Judah and capture it for ourselves. Then we will install the son of Tobiel as Judah's king. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. For Syria is no stronger than its capital, Damascus, and Damascus is no stronger than its king, Rezin. As for Israel, within 65 years, it will be crushed and completely destroyed. Israel is no stronger than its capital, Samaria, and Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah, son of Ramalia. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith tonight, God, with the truth of your word. God, there are legitimate concerns that we carry in our lives that are calls to action, that you want us to faithfully pursue. But God, I pray that you would help us get rid of the noise. God, that the enemy would throw at us with worries and fears. And God, we set our thoughts tonight, not on those concerns, not on those worries. We set it on your word for these next minutes, Lord God. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use it to speak to us and to our hearts so we can see things as you do, just as King Ahaz needed to in this moment. We ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You know, there's a, a, a pastor, an author, his name is Erwin McManus. He's one of like my favorite speakers because he can speak on anything. His brain just works definitely a different wavelength than mine. I could listen to this man talk about whether he prefers Polynesian sauce or Chick-fil-A sauce, and it would probably, he'd have some deep reasoning that would somehow blow my mind. And it was no surprise to me then that a major news network invited him on some time ago to talk about immigration. But before the interview, they had like a, debrief or whatever, where they were asking him, okay, what's your stance on immigration? Like, how are you going to speak to it? And when he gave his perspective, the host said, well, that's, that's not going to work. That's too holistic a stance. We need you to choose a side. And so the interview got quickly canned. And I don't share the network because then half of us in here would be like, that's why I don't watch that clown show on, on that channel. But every major news network does this, right? They need a crisis of the day. If they can't find one, they'll make one. And if it's too small, they'll make it a big one because they know fear sells. It's why I was reading some seemingly innocuous headline this week. Uh, It was like about groceries or something, and it said, this is why you should be concerned. Or or headlines will end like with, and it's coming for you, or you're next, or your family's next. There's always like this little, oh, you should be, you should, you should fear. You should be concerned. It can serve as a stimulus for worry, uh, uh, fuel for our proverbial fear factories. Fear this, fear that, fear the conservative agenda, fear the progressive platform. The command is plain no matter what side it's coming from. There's something to fear. And where the Bible would tell us, tell him to stop worrying or tell her she doesn't need to fear, so often the media tells us, oh, you should fire up that fear factory because this is something you should be worried about. And I don't think this is some fresh revelation for us. I don't think this is news to many of us. But if you're honest, you might still raise your hand and think, yeah, I'm guilty. It can jazz you up. And you might ask, well, why does, why does it work? Why does fear energize us? And it does. And it's not just metaphorically. Fear energizes us and the science attests to it. The amygdala is where our impulsive and unconscious responses happen, right? Where we have fear or bias. And what's wild is when you study the fear response in our brains, it lights up the amygdala. So when we feel fear, there's a release of, of dopamine and serotonin, 
So when we fear, we get a dopamine reward in our brain. It sounds absurd, but scientifically speaking, fear feels good. It's why there are roller coaster junkies or some other people might enjoy horror movies because it taps into this. And advertisers will tap into this. Politicians will tap into this. Well aware that fear energizes people. And one result of living in a culture like this and why I share this is the danger is that staying informed can become synonymous with staying worried. And God doesn't want us to live like that. And it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Time Magazine released an article a couple years ago showing how worry is killing us. Like the stress and worry we're living with, it's taking years off our life, (laughs) taking hours of sleep away, and just how we're worrying ourselves to death. So if a doctor were to come to us and say, hey, what you're eating is unhealthy and it's killing you, we might start counting carbs or or counting calories or changing what we consume. But when, when... science tells us, hey, what you're consuming is killing you. We should start thinking, oh, okay, what am I, what am I consuming that, that is causing me so much stress and causing me so much worry because we keep going back to the same content. But there's an old axiom from the days of computer programming, garbage in, garbage out, that faulty data produces faulty results. And some of us have an input problem. What are we feeding ourselves? How much of our day-to-day worry and stress and pessimism is an input problem. Because I don't remember the exact number, but it's, it's roughly 80% of Christians don't open their Bible outside of a church service on the weekend. So there's no input there. And if we don't balance, if we don't balance the, what we're consuming from the media with a steady diet of the hope and truth of God's word, then again, staying in the know can simply become synonymous with staying worried. And see, when we engage the culture out of fear and worry, our response will either be fight or flight. Right, like flight will bunker down and disengage entirely from the culture. But more often than not, we turn to the fight response. Foot soldiers in like a, a culture war where, where it's us versus them and each side rallies with this fear that the other side is taking ground. And so we adopt our side's cry that the sky is falling and we turn into chicken littles rather than Christians, little Christ that are supposed to be vessels of hope and, I don't know, the good news and love. See, we can become fueled by fear instead of love. And and again, this sounds so counterintuitive at first, but hear me out. Operating out of fear instead of love can be comforting. Because see, fear gets focus. I know who my enemies are. I know who to oppose, who to even hate. And love makes us vulnerable, but fear insulates us. Love pushes us toward people, but fear buffers. And where love tells us to lean in and listen, fear tells us we don't have to anymore. And when we get comfortable with fear, fear begins constructing new worries, manufactured fears. We need to heed again those words of Isaiah chapter 7. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him, tell her, she doesn't need to fear. You know, I've paused and let those words wash over me again and again. I think of recently, like I've got a a Run to Jesus song, like when I'm just stressed. It's a stress song. It's a Hold Me Jesus by Rich Mullins. I'll throw that on and I have my Bible open to this passage. And I was like, God. I'm stressed. That's all I got. (laughs) I need you. Like this is a sermon I've I've preached to myself. I've lived. And meditating on these words, I'm mindful of two things. There's two necessary clarifications. When we say do not worry, two clarifiers and, and definitions that are important. And the first is worrying versus anxiety or worry versus anxiety. See, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. Some translations say cast your worries or cast your anxieties to God. 
And so often, again, we, we treat it like it's a flip of a switch. And sometimes it, it is. This beautiful exchange. You come in stressed, you leave feeling like the, the weight of the world has been lifted from your shoulders. But sometimes when that anxiety persists, it can bring shame. Rather than us accepting this reality that God, no, God cares for you, even when it persists. And why I want to clarify what we're talking about when we, when we hear the command, don't worry, is because worry happens in our thoughts, right? It's common reactions to day-to-day and life events. But anxiety literally happens in our bodies, in our brain, and can be a domineering fixture that interferes with some people's ability to function day to day. Like clinical anxiety, clinical depression, PTSD, these are all matters of the brain produced by an overactive amygdala, where the threat center of the brain is in constant fight, flight, or freeze mode. And see, we don't say to other issues and health issues in our body that you should just pray that away, or pray harder, or have more faith, or just give it to God. But that's often been the answer in the church when it comes to these conditions that are in our brains. This common counsel to, to fight harder or, or, or strive harder, it's re-triggering to an already overworked amygdala. So now on top of anxiety or depression, you've got guilt and shame and exhaustion. And I've said it before and I'll repeat it again because it needs to be heard. Depression and anxiety, it doesn't mean you are in deep relationship connected to God. It means you're human. you got a brain. And it's tragic that the message of the church has so often been that if you're okay with God, if you just pray hard enough, that'll go away and you'll be okay. So rather than the emphasis on God cares for you, the church can pile guilt and shame on top of anxiety or depression. The enemy would love for you to feel defeated in this way. But victory is found in the way you live with it and the way you pursue God in it. Like Steph has Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's a degenerative condition. It's, It's a condition of her cells. Right? It's apples and oranges when you're comparing it to mental health. Do we pray for her healing? Yes. Do we believe God can? Absolutely. But if God doesn't heal her on a cellular level, this Ehlers-Danlos isn't going anywhere. But for her to live with it is not some defeat. Victory is how she lives with it and leans into God in the midst of it. And it's the same with the complex PTSD she's been diagnosed with from, from medical trauma. And it's the same with anyone's clinical anxiety or depression. I say all this. To be clear, when I use the word worry tonight and we reflect on this command to don't worry, stop worrying, I'm speaking about day-to-day general worries, the fears we manufacture, what God is specifically speaking to in this passage through Isaiah. So let's heed this call to cast our cares and anxiety and worries on God, right? Let's do that. We're going to have an opportunity to do that at the end of service tonight. But let me lovingly encourage you, if, the, if, if it persists, if it's not as simple as just walking out and the problem is solved, guess what? God cares for you. And the least you can do is lay down the guilt and the shame. But there's a second necessary point of clarification with, with don't worry. Worry versus concern. God doesn't say to Isaiah, tell him not to concern himself. He says, don't worry. There's a big difference. Like a king and a responsible leader should have many healthy concerns in life, including approaching enemies. Like an approaching army coming towards him to remove him on the throne, that is a very valid concern as king. But Isaiah 7 says that Ahaz was, was trembling with fear. The people were trembling with fear like trees shaking in a storm. Oh, there was plenty to be concerned about, but it's why Isaiah tells him not to worry or fear. He never says don't be concerned. Just as there are plenty things in life that will concern me and concern you, king or no king, crown or no crown, And this concern can be good and even appropriate. I'll tell you, concern is a good thing when it's directed at the right things, when it's kept from extremes, 
and it causes us to act appropriately. You know, in light of all the above, early on with my uh, current therapist, we just had a conversation about noise versus signal. It's become a part of our conversations ever since. This idea of noise versus signal. Because life as a caregiver for loved ones with degenerative conditions is like living before an uncertain future with relentless obstacles, no expiration date. Degenerative means it'll likely only get worse. So it takes this vigilance to guard your thoughts and your concerns in life, no matter their source. You know, everybody in here has valid concerns, and we have to protect our thoughts and protect our heart. And part of guarding your thoughts and concerns is directing them at the right things. This involves discerning what is a signal and what's noise. Noise is a thought that has no bearing on an immediate issue or solution to it. Signal is a thought or data that's meaningful to finding a solution. Noise is me worrying about what my family's health is gonna look like five years from now. Signal is, oh yeah, I should schedule that appointment with my primary care physician. <laughs> you can do something about a signal. Signals come with solutions. They cause us to act. It's about accepting what we can't change and taking charge of the things we can, which is helpful in a life where things might feel out of your control. But pivoting from my life or your life to our nation, there are circumstances we'll see around us that are concerning, just as there was in Judah when Isaiah was prophesying. And the thing is, like we talked about last week, there's like headline anxiety where the problems of the world get dumped on our proverbial doorstep every day as they happen, and there's this danger of becoming numb to our compassion, a valid concern and a valid compassion. The answer is never, I'm not going to concern myself. Because God's people aren't instructed to sever ourselves from our nation and our culture. We're instructed to do justice and love mercy. We're instructed to love our neighbor. We're instructed to work for the good of the, the place and the nation that God has put us in. And as we do all of that, especially in an election year that's rightfully, there's gonna be concern for the path forward, I love the piece that Psalm 47, 8 brings that says, God reigns above the nations, sitting on his holy throne. Like, can we just pause for a second and note that in this probably going to get contentious and worrisome year, that God's throne isn't up for re-election every four years. Like, he's not subject to any limits on terms. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. No election has ever crippled his kingdom or built Christendom, right? So, say la. We just pause reflect on that because God is on the throne is a pivotal truth that can drive away worry. But it, it, it shouldn't drive away concern. The call not to worry is not a call not to work, doing justice, loving our neighbor, and working for good. Matter of fact, in Proverbs 29.7, it says, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. They don't concern themselves with it. It states a lack of concern can be wicked. Concern should fuel our compassion and loving others well. Concern should, should fuel our convictions and where we take stands. God is on the throne, should spark praise and peace in every season, but it should never spark a, a shoulder shrug and passivity. And I share all this because our culture loves, again, to take our legitimate concerns, our legitimate fears, and, and marry them to, to more worry and more worry. But faith means tying our legitimate concerns first and foremost, to who God is. And a peace will flow from that that drowns our fears. But now that we've had those two points of clarification, worry and anxiety, worry and concern, let's, let's look at the two conclusions of the matter in Isaiah and this episode with King Ahaz. One involves a promised sign and the other an appropriate fear. First, the promised sign. 
Immediately after this passage we open with, where God encourages Ahaz and his people not to worry and fear, God prompts King Ahaz to ask for a sign to stir his faith. And it says, starting in verse 10, later the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as heaven or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. His excuse amounts to, to false humility. Right? He piously says he doesn't want to test God right? because in Numbers and Deuteronomy we see that the Israelites tested God and, and, and were reprimanded for it. This man knew his Bible. He knew his Torah. And yet that testing speaks to the rebellion and stubborn refusal of the Israelites to obey God and, and stand on his promises. And we're reminded here that piety and faith are two different things. I was reflecting on that recently as I was reading through the Gospels, that demons in the Gospels treat Jesus with piety and a pious respect. But God wants something more than piety and respect. He wants obedience. God wanted Ahaz's trusting obedience, but he refused to under this mask of piousness. And Isaiah, he responds with frustration saying, oh, you're testing God all right. You're testing his patience. And we're going to go ahead and give you a sign anyways to prove that you should have had faith. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, a virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, for King Ahaz, this sign would be a future confirmation of the right decision to trust God. I love that it wasn't a sign that was going to be miraculous, and, and all of a sudden you have all this faith because you saw this miraculous sign. It was future confirmation that you were making the right move. And it was this reminder he didn't need to seek help from Assyria because God was with them. Emmanuel, God with us. But that no that verse no doubt sounds a little familiar, right? This talking about a virgin birth because it, it was a twofold sign. It has a single meaning but a double significance. Now the first significance is for Ahaz in this moment of decision. Again, that he did not need to appeal to Assyria because God was with him and his people. And in this first significance with Ahab, it spoke to the virginity of the mother at the time of the sign's announcements. But the typical word for an unmarried woman or a virgin isn't used here in the Hebrew. It's this ambiguous Hebrew word that can mean either a virgin or just a woman of age who's not married. So the Holy Spirit inspires Isaiah to use this kind of mysterious, ambiguous word to write this multifaceted prophecy, providing the same message for everyone who would ever read Isaiah's prophecy, because we know Jesus came from a literal virgin birth. And the message remained for Ahaz as it remains for me and for you tonight that God is with us. You don't, know, you don't need to fear what other people may fear and what other people may do. See, God is not just some force. God is not just some principle. God is a person. And in his personhood, he wants to be present with us in relationship. We see it in the Old Testament with places like the Garden of Eden or after this, the sin of Adam and Eve. We even see it in the tabernacle and then in the temple. God wants to be with his people, present with us. And then we see in, in the Gospel of John, it says that Jesus tabernacled amongst us, right? He became God in the flesh with us. It's one of the most profound truths in all of Scripture, and we can stand in hope, and we can stand in faith because of it. So we might ask, how could King Ahaz in this moment turn to such an evil enemy like Assyria in light of all of this Isaiah is saying? But this isn't the only time in history that people pivoted to turn power to a questionable recipient because of worries and fears. I can remember a couple election cycles ago, I was reading an article on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was a sermon he preached on January 15th of 1933, between the two world wars. 
But after the Treaty of Versailles, that was so punitive and punishing that the entire economy collapsed. Six million people lost their jobs. There was this, this desperation, this worry that became a fertile ground for more manufactured fears and more worries that provided the ground for the Nazi party. And it's in this setting that Bonhoeffer preached this sermon called Overcoming Fear. And he said the following. He said, let's say there is a ship on the high sea having a fierce struggle with the waves. The storm wind is blowing harder by the minute. The boat is small, tossed about like a toy. The sky is dark. The sailor's strength is failing. Then one of them is gripped by whom? What? He can't tell himself. But someone is there in the boat who wasn't there before. Suddenly he can no longer see or hear anything, can no longer row. A wave overwhelms him, and in the final desperation he shrieks, Stranger in this boat, who are you? And the others answer, I am fear. All hope is lost. Fear is in the boat. Fear is in the boat, in Germany, in our own lives, and in the name of this church. Naked fear of an hour from now or tomorrow or the day after. It's a powerful illustration. And if we're honest, there are fears in the American church today as there were in previous elections, or just relevant concerns, right, for the future and the path forward. And we too need a reminder in our culture that can be fueled by fear of who else is in the boat. Because maybe you, you begin to hear that description, you're like, oh, it's, it's the disciples in the boat, right? It's going to be Jesus, especially as it's a sermon. I love that in Mark's gospel account of the calming of the storm, right, in the ending it says of the disciples, this is after the storm has been calmed after the wind and the waves. It says they were more afraid than ever <laughs> and said to each other, who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. See, fear of the wind and waves was eclipsed by a proper fear. This fear of, of God in the flesh, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. And this is one of 40 times in the gospels, Jesus asks his disciples or a crowd, why are you so afraid? He's like, don't you know who I am? <laughs> Emmanuel, God in the flesh, God with you. And like it did for the disciples in that boat, the fear of God can eclipse all our other concerns. And that speaks to the second conclusion to draw from in this episode is a proper fear. See, Ahaz's rejection of Isaiah's message is almost immediate. He chooses to place his trust in Assyria and their strength instead of God. And in that moment, he's, he's no doubt deciding between the, the better of two evils in his mind, right? Give in to uh, uh, Israel and Syria and let them put this other man on the throne or fight them with Assyria. But there was a third choice he'd ignored. Obey God's instructions. But the fears of the flesh and no doubt his worries eclipsed this appropriate fear of God and his power. And I'm sure in Judah there were no doubt differing opinions and theories about what was going on and what should be done it was a dilemma without a clear answer. No doubt there were conspiracies and fears and theories of what could happen in either direction. Like if we submit to Syria and Israel, they'll come for our freedom. If we, if we align with Assyria, they'll eventually come for our families. People fearing their life being torn apart if the nation went one way or another. See, if social media existed, then no doubt there it would have looked similar to ours. Bitter disputes, conspiracy theories thrown each direction. And I love that God comes to Isaiah with specific instructions for how to do life amidst this pot that looked ready to boil over. And I believe there's specific instructions for anybody that desires to be faithful to God in tumultuous and worrisome times. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 14, right after this narrative says, the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do and don't live in dread of what frightens them. 
Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who, will make you tre- who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. There's this proper fear of God that puts everything else in its proper place, including worry. But where King Ahaz misplaced his fear, Isaiah is encouraged to fear God. And I love that we see where King Ahaz misplaced his fear. We see his son and successor, Hezekiah, did make the same mistake. See, I love the Bible. And that's why I, I love the things you, you find when you just keep reading. When you, when you read the Bible outside of bite-sized verses or, or just parroted portions, it, you get context. You get depth. Isaiah 7 mentions the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. As the place outside the walls where Isaiah had this message delivered to Ahaz. But this isn't the last time we see that location in Isaiah. In Isaiah 36, verse 2, some 34 years later, as the commander of the Assyrian army is coming to collect on this terrible agreement that King Ahaz had made with Assyria, he orders Judah to surrender. He talks to them at length about why they should and why they should fear and why their God won't deliver them. And where does he stand as he does this? It says the Assyrians took up position beside the aqueduct that feeds the water to the upper pool. So at the same aqueduct where Isaiah had sent Hezekiah's father the message, tell him to stop worrying. Tell him there's nothing to fear. We got two generations of kings, two voices giving them opposite advice from the same standing place. Now, did Hezekiah know this? Maybe, probably, I don't know. We don't know. But unlike King Ahaz, his son Hezekiah doesn't succumb to fear and worry. He heeds the truth of Isaiah instead that God, he's the one to fear, and he will keep you safe. It's this proper fear of God that allows Hezekiah and his people to stand in faith as God delivers them. But I love the steps we see Hezekiah and and his people take in that moment in Isaiah 36. And we'll close with those. Because in the past, when people have been walking through their own gauntlet and hard times and hard seasons, they might ask me, like, hey, how do you manage? And and I've pointed in the past to this passage in, in, in Isaiah, what is it, 30, what did I just say? 36 as instructive for me. Because the first thing we see, first thing we see, they don't say a word back. They don't say a word back because as it says in verse 21, the king had commanded them, don't answer him. See, thoughts of fear and worry may come, but we don't have to hold a conversation. Thoughts of worry may fly into our mind, but we don't have to let it build a nest, right? Circumstances will invite us to worry, but here's the thing, we don't have to RSVP. (laughs) We don't have to RSVP. Again, discerning noise from a signal is a tool. So much of my life is out of my control, right? And it might be for you too. There's plenty of signals and things to do, but there's also bound to be plenty of noise, right? Worries about things I can't control. And I love what the poet Ivan Nuru once wrote, if it's out of your hands, it deserves freedom from your mind too. If it's out of your hands, it deserves freedom from your mind too because it's noise. And even when it's a signal, what's my first impulse, Right? Who am I sending my RSVP to? Is it that fear factory that manufactures new fears and worries, or is it God's presence? Because that's the second thing we see. Hezekiah, his first impulse is not to go to the wall and shout down the enemy. His first impulse is to tear his robes in grief, immediately go into the temple to pray, and order others to do the same. Was he feeling fear? No doubt. But he takes it to God in prayer. He casts his fear, his worries, and cares on God. And for him in that moment, what that looked like was prayer. And for you tonight, maybe what that looks like is like Hezekiah's lament in the temple, in that sanctuary. For me, it often looks like Steph will just know. I'm like, it's been a long day. She's like, hey, why don't you go take a break? And I'll go upstairs. And my quiet place is literally our closet. I've literally got a prayer closet because that's one place Raj never looks for me. (laughs) He's never found me in there. 
Or it may look like, I love the book Nehemiah. It's full of action, right? Nehemiah's a man of action, but there's all these little bullet prayers, like just short little bursts of prayer. Like one that I've echoed before is simply, oh, God, strengthen my hands. But thirdly, we see Hezekiah has other people in his life who can speak truth to him. He's got these advisors, but beyond that, he's got Isaiah speaking the truth of God's word, speaking God's truth into his situation. And that's the gift of the church. It's the gift of the body of Christ. Like-minded believers who believe the same thing, who hope in the same thing, that can rally around you and can rally around me. Steph and I have said it again and again. I don't know how we would do this alone. I don't know how people do this alone. But we're not built for it. We're not called to it. We're called to be a part of the body. So I love those three things we see Hezekiah and his people do to move forward in faith even when they felt fear, even when they were worried. But to come full circle, you know another skimmed over five-word phrase that we find again and again and again in the narrative parts of Scripture that is also reassuring tonight is, and it came to pass. It's the truth of so much in life. Hardships come. Traumatic experiences will happen. Sometimes they leave behind trauma, but still, it comes to pass. Time goes on. Seasons change, good and bad. And yes, sometimes the bad passes like a kidney stone, but it still passes. But even the absolute worst, death, loss, degenerative conditions, and alike, we have the hope and promise of eternity. That's no small thing. Like, we don't wait for this confirmation of this sign of Emmanuel, God with us. No, he already won the conflict, right? The battle doesn't loom large for us like it did with Ahaz. To quote Jesus, it's finished, right? There are hardships, there are proverbial battles in our lives, but we get to trust in the work of Jesus and the promise and hope of eternity. Romans 8.18 says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he revealed to us later. 2 Corinthians 4.18 almost echoes this. It says, so we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things we can't see. So as we close in worship tonight, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Right? It says, the author and finisher of our faith, who proclaimed it's finished. We'll have people available down here for prayer. And as we step into worship, I just want to read Psalm 118, verses 5 through 6. It says, in my distress, or you can say, in my stress, in my worry, in my depression, in my anxiety, I prayed to the Lord. It says, in my distress, I prayed to the Lord, and the Lord answered me, and he set me free. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. God, I pray, even as we come into worship, where there's speakers and there's noise, God, that, that's not the noise we need to worry about tonight. God, I pray that the, the noise we would bring to you is the worry that we've manufactured, the fear we've manufactured, that the enemy has fed us again and again that can get in the way of your still small voice. So God, I pray that in worship tonight, whatever valid concerns or crazy worries that we brought in here tonight, whatever it may be, I pray that we take the opportunity, whether it's just coming up to this altar or receiving prayer, to cast our cares onto you. Why? Because you care for us. Because you love us. I pray if nothing else, that would be the reminder we walk out of here tonight. God cares for you. Those cares that you carry, those concerns you have, God cares. And not just that, he's in it with you. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And even when it's the hardest of the hard, death, loss, Jesus, you beat the grave. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. And we bring it all before you tonight, thankful that you care for us and you love us. In Jesus' name, let's sing.